0: Welcome to You Can't Make This Up, a companion podcast for Netflix original true crime stories. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, your host. Each episode, we take a close-up look at a true crime narrative, documentary, or series, and I talk to the people who made them, diving deep into the backstories and getting answers to questions raised by what we just watched. Today, we're covering the four-part docuseries, This is a Robbery, the World's Biggest Art Heist. I talk with Colin Barnacle, the series director and executive producer. A note to listeners, this episode contains spoilers, so make sure to watch the entire series and then listen on. In 1990, two men dressed as cops conned their way into a Boston museum and stole a fortune in art. The stolen works are estimated to be worth over half a billion dollars today, and there's a $10 million reward for whoever finds them. This is a robbery. The world's biggest art heist goes deep into the leads, dead ends, lucky breaks, and speculation surrounding this notorious crime that remains unsolved over thirty years later. The Isabella Stewart Connor Museum was a artist's delight. Millions of dollars worth of artwork. Rembrandt, Degas, Vermeer, St. Patty's Day, nineteen ninety.
1: Two men dressed as police officers show up at the door, and they say very dramatically, "Gentlemen." This is a robbery.
0: There's no shortage of possible suspects. Boston was so wild west. The two front runners: bull the Italian mob, the Irish mob. Hey, how you doing?
1: The mafia knew that having a stolen masterpiece is a get-out-of-jail-free card. The feds will deal with you. They'll let you out of jail.
0: An easy, easy score, as they say on the street. There were 13 works taken. Most important, a storm on the Sea of Galilee. It's the only Rembrandt seascape in existence.
1: This was huge, not just locally, but internationally.
0: In Dublin, Solon Art was used by the IRA as an international currency. In Boston, Whitey Bulger provided the IRA with weapons. The pain it could be in the Middle East. Japan. And South America. Colin, welcome to You Can't Make This Up.
1: Thank you for having me. It's a great podcast.
0: Now, Colin, most of your work has revolved around sports and music. This is your first true crime documentary, though, and I'm curious why you decided to make this turn.
1: Uh, yeah, we're, uh, my brother and I are from Boston, uh, just outside Boston, actually. And we had heard about this crime for a long time, and we just kind of felt like we wanted to do something on it. Obviously, being sports doc, people and primarily baseball documentary people it was a tough sell at first Hmm. we had to do a lot to get people interested in it but um it just there's something about unsolved crimes that is just so infuriatingly curious that you just you dip one toe into the mystery and you just kind of want to keep going
0: yeah, no, I know. And you can tell, I I think there really is sort of the pacing and suspense of a sports documentary at the heart of this one. And I actually really felt that as a viewer, like there was kind of a drive behind it, a momentum that reminded me of, you know, really great sports films. Was that intentional? I mean, we wanted to. So
1: our basis was that we wanted to make sure that the viewer got a really good, accurate picture of the robbery we wanted to start there and we felt like the best way to do it is tell the story without hindsight. Hmm. And we wanted to have the viewer feel like they're going through all the ups and downs of an investigation Hmm. in real time going through it. So, you know, in relation to sports, I guess that would be similar. You know, you watch a game and you don't know the ending of it, you know, it's going to end, but you don't know how.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I'm really curious about the robbery itself and your thoughts about one particular detail that I've always wondered about. I mean, this is definitely an iconic crime. And for people listening, you should know that if you live in New England, like this case comes up all the time. I live in New Hampshire and this story comes up all the time in conversation. Uh, It comes up in other media projects, like the big anniversaries are celebrated on the news. But I've always been curious about the list of works that were stolen. I understand that the Rembrandt, the Manet, the Vermeer, of course. Um, But what's up with that Chinese beaker and that Napoleonic finial? I mean, their value isn't really obvious. What do you make of those being stolen as well?
1: Yeah, each has a little bit of a story to it. The Chinese beaker. there was actually one stolen from the Museum of Fine Arts, which is like you could throw a baseball from the gardener's front door and hit the Museum of Fine Arts. There was a beaker stolen from that just a year prior, and there was a there was some good publicity on um, how much it cost. It was half a million dollars for this little little beaker. So I feel like they took it because it was there, and because they knew that it cost a good amount of money from you know, looking at it in the newspapers. I also think there was a sizing issue that they had um, once they got the Rembrandts and they cut them out of their frame and they figured out they couldn't roll these things up. They're driving a hatchback. And so they go, oh boy, you know, um, we can't fit these things in and, and all these other huge works of art because we can't fold them up. Yeah. And from the moment they take the Rembrandts, and the Vermeer, it seems like they decided to take everything else, almost almost based on size, almost if they could fold it up. So I don't think it was, you know, Mensa members walking around the museum, studying <laughs> the art and then choosing the ones that they thought really resonated with them. I think there was, you know, hey, I want to grab that because it looks cool. I feel like I could put it in my pocket and, um, you know, throw it into the back of a hatchback without it falling out.
0: Now, the series does actually point to these two threads. You have some experts saying that this robbery was really professional. It was meticulously planned. You know, they knew what they were going for. And then you have some talking about how it was clumsy and ham-fisted. And, you know, they probably didn't know how big these things were. And they just ripped the stuff out of the frame. Where do you land on that? I think you just gave us a clue. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just curious to know.
1: Yeah, I think... These two thieves were professional thieves. They were not professional art connoisseurs. They knew and they were brazen enough. They had done things like this before, robberies like this before. And I think they were hired to go into the museum. I don't think this was something they did for themselves. And they were hired to get the Rembrandts, but they're thieves. So when they're in the museum that long, I think they start to take things for themselves. And I think they start to take things that they can... They can hide that they think will fit into the back of a car, basically. That's where their focus is.
0: I'm really curious about your thoughts about the guard, Rick, who, you know, I think it, I, I have theories that I'll share with you in a second, but it does look I'm going to speculate. When you see that photo of him taped up, the tape isn't a place where you would tape yourself. That's how it looks to me. Uh, Of course, he may not have, and his, his involvement may be nothing, but he is a character who's at the center of this that a lot of people talk about, maybe being complicit, maybe not. But he did talk to reporters, as we heard, and he's, you know, he's not like a recluse necessarily. For some reason, I seem to be the only person involved in this thing who's not trying to figure it out. And that mainly comes down to, I'm glad to be alive. What are your thoughts about him?
1: Yeah, I think, I don't think he was, first of all, an odd hire. You know, I think a lot of times he gets portrayed as like completely odd in terms of what the gardener was all about. But he was fairly normal guard. They were all kind of students or real county types. I think it falls into two baskets. You either think he's like completely guilty or you think maybe that he got a bum rap. I land on the side where he might be complicit, but he wasn't, I don't think he was like an active participant of the robbery. I mean, he is definitely, when he gets put down in that museum, he gets put in the basement at the far side of the museum. They walk him a ways away from the other guard which is, you know, kind of strange. And it's a, that basement is like a dark basement to a building built in, you know, 1900. So it's not like the easiest thing to get around. And yeah, they put him on a ledge and he looks, I mean, I don't think anybody would say it's comfortable to be taped up and put in the basement for seven hours, but it's not like they really hurt him or roughed him up all that much. Right. I mean, I didn't want to assume anything going into it, so... I looked at it in terms of he's innocent until proven guilty. And um, I don't think you could get a conviction of him. Let me put it that way.
0: Right. I mean, I think if he's involved, it's probably something very much in between. He's either completely innocent or totally complicit. It might have been like, you know, can you open this door? We'll give you a little bit of money if you do. It could be something like that, which is not the same as being fully complicit in this kind of heist. But there was one detail that I wonder if you've thought about that I kept thinking about because this question keeps coming up about he said he would open this door all the time. Why did he open the door? We also find out he's a heavy smoker in the film. When he goes to meet that reporter, he'll only go to a restaurant where they allow smoking. And I just kept thinking, like, is he just opening the door so he could, like, blow smoke outside?
1: Yeah, maybe. He is in the—there's a tape from the night before. And he let somebody in willy-nilly in that tape. And he's actually smoking inside the museum (laughs) on the tape. You can see him, he's trying to hide from the camera underneath it, (laughs) but there's smoke emanating from his lips. And he's, um, it's a possibility. I know that they had looked into whether he had opened that door before and they couldn't find any evidence of it. But I also know that the tapes only ran about six days prior to the crime. So you could have only checked it in that window and they didn't readily save the, the printouts or they'll really look over the log books hmm. of the actions of the guards within the museum. They kind of just relied on, you know, the security director would come back and if nothing happened, you know, nothing happened. He wouldn't be reviewing the guards each night. So he had not opened that door in the prior five, six days, but past that, he says he had. He said he did that a lot. And you do see him on his rounds that night opening other doors on the first floor and checkings. So it's odd within that week, outside that week, I couldn't say, and I don't think anybody could say.
0: Right. I want to talk about Miles Connor, huh? maybe the most larger-than-life character I've seen in any documentary recently.
1: It depends upon whom you ask. But in general, I'm known as an art thief. And some people consider me the biggest art thief in this country because I've robbed a number of museums. But then again, I was a rock and roll guy.
0: How did you get him to participate in this film?
1: We got him to participate because I was interviewing his lawyer and he called at that moment. And I hadn't (laughs) been able to get him on the phone for like two years. Wow. Wow. And he just happened to call, and I mentioned, he was like, oh, yeah, great, yeah, no, come down, I'm down here in Georgia, you can come down and interview me, I would love to do it. By the way, what is Netflix?
0: Oh, my God.
1: Yeah, so it was happenstance that I got a hold of him. Um,
0: I think a whole documentary could be made about Miles Connor. personally. Um, What was it like talking with him? I mean, here he's a bit of a Luddite from your story there, but... um, He, you know, he's somebody who obviously has served time. He's made deals. He does not, you know, hide the fact that he was a thief. What's it like talking to somebody who, you know, did those things?
1: Yeah, it's, you know, Miles is extremely smart. He's literally a Mensa member. I remember when we first got there, there was a, um, there was a snake in the field and he was talking about how it wasn't poisonous because of the shape of his head. He's like a, he studied herpetology, I think it is, like the study of, reptiles he knows a lot and most of the conversation revolved really around art itself what the kind of art that he liked and the kind of art that he stole um the actual machinations of him robbing something were oftentimes it's just like another thing in his life that he's like doesn't feel like it's a a big part of it he feels like yeah it was just like part of my job description was robbing these pieces of art. And he robbed art that he liked at times to keep, but he also robbed it to get out of jail. And he didn't do it once. He didn't rob that 1975 Rembrandt to get out of jail just at one time. He did it again in 86. Wow. He had a friend rob a Massachusetts Bay colony charter, which is basically the thing that King George gave to, you know, the pilgrims to say, yeah, you get, you can have this colony there. Um, He had a friend rob it and hold on to it until his verdict came up in 1986 for a murder trial. And Miles was so certain he was going to be convicted that he actually skipped bail. He skipped the day that uh, he was about to be sentenced, thinking that I'll have to hold this piece of art out. And he was actually, he got a not guilty verdict. He had a, His lawyer had to go out to a phone booth and be like, come back, You're not guilty. And, uh, <laughs> the charter was returned like a week later
0: wow. So he was like really holding it hostage for just that reason. He reminds me a lot of Thomas Crown. Um, You know, if you've seen either version of the Thomas Crown affair, like the idea that he would steal things that sometimes that he loved, because we hear in the film that that's not typically the case. Like these paintings aren't stolen so they could be hung in someone's living room somewhere. I find that super interesting.
1: Yeah. I mean, every once in a while you run across folks who did rob something for their own benefit. But Miles is like this guy who is like, like you wouldn't believe it if you heard it. This description of like, he played with the Beach Boys and Roy Orbison. He lived with a horse for a while that the horse actually lived inside of his house. Um, He had pet crocodiles. Uh, he robbed, you know, Wyeths up in Maine. He had a shootout with police. He escaped jail by fashioning a gun out of a piece of soap and holding it up to the guard and then going on the lam for several months. Uh, he's a, like a, he's like a cartoon character bouncing around the 1970s, 1980s in Massachusetts.
0: It's incredible. What do you make of that 2013 FBI press conference where they said they know who the thieves were, but that the thieves were dead? I found myself wondering, um, what's the point of that? What did you make of it?
1: Yeah, um, it's kind of aggravating because I think a lot of people think that, you know, Well, if you know who did it and you think they're dead, then why wouldn't you just tell us who that is? Because there's no point to holding it out. I think that press conference is now, we know that it was used to try to flush out information from people that they had wires on at that time,
0: primarily in
1: the Philadelphia mob, that they were hoping to make that announcement and then catch somebody talking about it on a wire. And that had happened multiple times before where they had flushed information out to the media and caught somebody on the wire talking about it. I think that was the hope. That's what they were hoping for, but it was certainly, you know, aggravating to hear like, well, we know who did it, but we're not going to tell you. It's kind of almost cruel.
0: <laughs> yeah. It's like a, it's like dangling a fish and then pulling it back. Um, yeah. One of the only living suspects in this case is David Turner, who the film covers that mysterious deal he made to shorten his sentence. And, You know, there's a lot of things that potentially tie him to this crime. I'm curious about what you know about what he's up to today, if you know anything at all.
1: Yeah, I I know um, we keep tabs on him. (laughs) I know where he's supposed to be living. And uh, there's been some speculation that he signed a life rights deal. I think he has intimate knowledge of the robbery itself, which doesn't mean that he has intimate knowledge of where the art went after 1994, 1995. He'd been in prison for 20 years. So
0: I don't think he knows where the
1: art is now specifically, but I think he could, you know, I should say allegedly, but I know he would know about the robbery itself and the handling of the art intimately.
0: I'm curious about the other value the art might have to me, the case in terms of like, who did it seems you know, if not solved, there's some very viable theories that seem to be close to right, if not completely right. <laughs> Obviously, a huge part of the mystery here is where are the paintings? I think that's the part of the mystery that people think about when they think about this case. Yeah. And I, I've been thinking a lot about the other kinds of value that they might have. if If they can be used to trade with the government for considerations— couldn't they also be valuable for criminals to trade with each other so that then they would have that bargaining chip? Um, Isn't that, isn't there like an underworld kind of value there that maybe we're not thinking about right off the top of our heads?
1: Yeah, there's absolutely a value to this art in the black market. I, when we started this couldn't conceptualize how that would even work. How do you take something that you don't think you could sell and use it for value in a drug trade? Um, But Miles Connor absolutely did that. In the late 80s, it's actually why he went to prison in the 90s. He had tried to, um, he used two stolen paintings and like a kilo of cocaine and tried to sell it. But the paintings were used as uh, as an insurance policy. And I feel like it's one of the mysteries of the, of the cases, kind of seeing this alternative universe that is existing below what we know, this idea that there are these huge high-powered criminals that use and barter in this art for other means and that's certainly true even today where we track down criminals in the balkans who were using and stealing art to trade them for guns and trade them for diamonds um right it's like there's these cracks in the known universe and you can slip through them and there's like a whole nother world underneath
0: I'm curious about stories that you didn't include in the film ultimately, but that were like little mysteries that you became intrigued by. Because this really is a story where every step of the way, every page that you turn, it's like, holy cow, that's, that's a little mystery of its own. And that's a little mystery of its own. So were there other things like that that you knew about that you really were hoping to include, but you know because of time or story or whatever, you, you, you couldn't?
1: There was definitely uh, a lot of little details that we wanted to include that we couldn't put in there You know, the whole mystery of the blue room, whether, you know, Rick is the last, honestly, the last person in it or not, or whether the thieves could have gotten in there. Um, We became pretty like experts on late 80s infrared technology, um, which is mind numbing to read about. But uh, (laughs) one of the mysteries was that there are more than more than one painting missing out of that blue room the morning of the crime. And we know that one is stolen, the or Tony, and we know that one is the one above it, which is a portrait that Manet did of his mother, um, that that was up in the conservators room where investigators think that the thieves might have been. But there's also three or four others on the wall adjacent to it that you can see in the police photos are just not there the morning of the crime. And we talked to conservators and they couldn't figure out where those were They couldn't either remember or they didn't think they were upstairs. They thought it would be odd for that number of paintings to be taken out of one room at one time and put in the conservator's room. So that's, it's just a little mystery within the mystery, but it does suggest that if you can't be certain about where four paintings went in that room, I can be certain about where the fifth painting that was stolen went, you know, stood up in the conservator's room or, Did Rick really go in there? I know that the printout, which is the only thing that we have to go on about who was in that room, that that says that Rick set off one of the alarms later that night, about 15 minutes after he supposedly goes into the blue room. He sets off one of the alarms, but he only sets it off one time, which should be impossible because if you enter the room, Mm -hmm. you set off again when you leave it. Um, It's either was misprinted or... It was a faulty alarm. We don't know.
0: So I'm curious if you have a theory about where the paintings might be after they dug up that guy's shed and found the giant Tupperware and they weren't in there. Where <laughs> I think everybody was very disappointed about that. Do you think that they are still intact? And do you think that they are hiding somewhere really cool?
1: Yeah, I think, um, I do think the minor pieces are intact. I do think that they are probably in the New England area, and I think they're probably, the minor pieces being the Degas and probably even the Monet, they might be on, you know, grandma's wall and she wouldn't even know about it. I, I, not all these pieces are readily iconic. Right. The last we heard about the major ones was uh, in 2002, the Storm on the Sea was put up for sale in a black market sale off Rittenhouse Square in Philadelphia. And the last we heard about the finial, which is the lowest end piece, was that it was above a grease pit in a garage in Hartford. Huh. And we heard that the the Chinese beaker, that they thought when they couldn't sell it, that it was made of gold. And they actually started to chip away at it to try to do it. And... Um, that they realized it was bronze and they took it out back of a uh, condo in Waltham next to a mobile gas station and threw it into the, the trash in the mobile gas station. Um, wow. I do think there are pieces out there that are in the New England area. I don't think they've moved outside the country, but there is, there is a possibility of it. And there were pipelines to do that readily from Boston to Montreal to Ireland
0: fascinating. I I keep wondering maybe somebody will show up one day on Antiques Roadshow like after finding this painting like at a yard sale and they'll be like, oh, that's a Rembrandt. Congratulations. (laughs) Um, I think a lot of people think they know a lot about this story. I certainly learned a lot of things I didn't know watching your documentary. What are you hoping viewers will take away that they didn't have when they were coming in to watch this film?
1: Yeah, we kind of want to put like the whole case file into one four-part series so everybody knows what was going on. My hope is that people get some clarity on why the art was robbed, who robbed it, and what happened that night, you know, that the inside job theory is probably not a theory, probably did happen. You know, there was probably somebody, if not Rickabat, somebody absolutely gave information on the museum to be able to do um, what these thieves did. Uh, Hopefully, you know, some armchair sleuth listening to this or or watching, you know, can figure it out because a piece of art will pop up, hopefully because of this, but it it will happen.
0: I really hope it does. And I hope it does because of this. I think the film is great. One of the things that you did, which is so hard to do, is infuse a story I thought I knew with a lot of suspense. And I like I said, I learned a lot. Uh, Colin, thank you so much for talking with me about your film. I, I so enjoyed it.
1: Thank you, Rebecca.
0: And that's it for this week's episode. Thanks again to director Colin Barnacle. For more of my takes on true crime, check out my other podcast, Crime Writers On. Each week on that show, we break down the latest in true crime documentaries, podcasts, and pop culture. If you like You Can't Make This Up, please subscribe to rate and review this show and share it with your friends. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. And stay tuned for our very special next episode. We'll be previewing the first episode of a new Netflix original podcast called Searching for the Sons of Sam. You can't make this up as a production of Netflix. Our music is by Hansdale Sue and our producer is Shayna Deloria. I'm Rebecca Lavoy. Thanks so much for listening.